doesn't take much more than a minute to play a minuet. I've always enjoyed that little piece. It's so light and cheerful and refreshing and uplifting. Appreciate that, Raven. Well, it seems the speakers keep going back to the Psalms, so I might as well. It's been amazing to me how much uh, reference there's been to the Psalms this time. Maybe it's no more than normal, but it, it just seems to, since I had focused on it myself. And I know most of these sermonettes and the sermons and so on are pretty much prepared before the feast ever arrives, so maybe God wanted our attention here. Uh, in some respects, I think it's a really good change of pace. We, we go through so much heaviness and so many things that are difficult for us and, and so on, and uh, this, while it has its ups and downs and its correction and exhortation, it also has inspiration and, and points us to God. And what more could we ask, especially when we're anticipating the kingdom of God to be established on the earth in a short while. So let's go to Psalm 19, where we left off last time I spoke. (coughs) says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Someone was using words yesterday, looking up new words, I guess, to work on their vocabulary, and they they brought up the word cosmenogy, I guess it was, and uh, the cosmos, study of the universe and the stars and so on. Uh, Well, here's the first time in my life I could use that word, I guess. But you look up and the heavens declare the glory of God. Sometimes we get looking down at ourselves and down at problems and down at difficulties and we need to look up a lot and see what God has done. That's one of the things that I enjoy about Zion itself is everything's there and it makes you look up. Uh, The Grand Canyon, unless you go through a lot of work to get down to the bottom, you always look down. Uh, Not that it isn't beautiful and inspiring, it certainly is because God made that indeed as well, but... uh, it's, it's nice to have things that force us to look up, because up is where the answers lie. So his handiwork is seen, and his glory is seen there, and what a glory it is. Day to day utters speech, and night to night shows knowledge. So day and night, as we look at what God has created around us, and enjoy, and look at the marvels of it, It helps us to understand. It helps us to have proper knowledge of who and what is truly important. I'm sure you've had the same emotion sometimes I do when you go into the cities that man has made and they make fancy names for them like the City of Angels, Los Angeles, or New York, the Big Apple, or whatever. And uh, I hate those places. They're the greatest accomplishments of modern man, I guess. That's what they look to, is their fine creations, is the cities and those freeways that interlink them together so you can get quickly from one of them to the other. But to me, they're depressing. Uh, They may have some fine buildings, and yeah, it took a lot of skill and intelligence and training and education to build those buildings. But just walk out here like I did last night and look up. And it's so much more beautiful than what we see that man has scratched the surface of the earth with and actually sort of cluttered it, in my view. You know, God does not like cities. Uh, He's the, the holy city, the New Jerusalem coming down, if you do the math, is about 1,500 miles cubed and only has 144,000 inhabitants plus Uh, some angels and so on, but uh, it's not going to be that cluttered. There's miles per person in cubic space. We don't have to think just flat land area per person because then we ourselves will occupy bigger space above and below and so on because we can go through space. Anyway, he's given us a great deal to look at 
to help understand who and what he is. And those things we need to look at day and night frequently. Sit and just look at a tree. Man can't do even a tree. He can cut one down, chop it up, and make a building or a fire, but he can't begin to make a simple tree. Simple, yeah, try it. As soon as you get one made, bring it in, we'd like to see it. We can't impart life. We can't make things work the way God made them work. And so he tells us in Romans 1 that we are to look to his creation, to see him. If we begin to think sometimes he's harsh, that his judgment is harsh, look at some of the things of beauty that he's made and understand the kind of creative, loving, gentle, kind mind is behind that type of creation. And yet, while he can think so very small in terms of molecules and lower, he also thinks in splendorous, wide vistas in terms of the very size of the universe. So God's mind is at once very minute and yet very expansive as well. And we kind of fall somewhere in there uh, without the right balance at all times. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Mankind, wherever he is, no matter what language, what speech he has, he all observes the same things. The beautiful creation of God around us. So it's heard everywhere if we're just listening, if we're just looking at what he has done and understanding where it came from. Mankind tries to hide from that by coming up with all kinds of stupid theories as to how things got here, because they do not want to accept God. Their line has gone out, their rule, their authority, their boundaries through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tabernacle for the sun. So this influence of the creation that God has made goes everywhere, which is as a bridegroom's coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit to the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The heavenly bodies generate heat. The influence, the heat is the only thing that allows us to be here today. The sun shining brightly outside the front door and it warms us. It makes life possible and makes it pleasant as well. The, the law of the eternal is perfect, converting the soul. Now, a lot of people speak of being converted out in the world and in different churches, but then they deny the law, saying it's all done away with and we don't have to keep it. Well, what is the conversion process? Remember that the human mind is carnal and is enmity or the enemy of God. It is the enemy of the ways of God. Just a normal, natural human mind. I don't mean an evil person by man's standards, but any person on the face of the earth tends to be full of lust, vanity, jealousy, grief, uh, envy, and lust, and all kinds of negative things. Our minds just go there. We're selfish by nature to the core. And we have to be trained as little children even. Now, you have to share your toys. Don't grab his food. And on and on it is because we tend to be that way. So you have to have the law of God, which is summarized by loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you'd have them do to you. So it is that law and all the ramifications of it that convert us from being selfish to being giving and loving and serving and caring. Now, if the law is that instrumental in transforming selfish, greedy humans into giving, serving loving, caring children of God, 
Why would you want to do away with it? Well, God says, if you will enter into the kingdom, keep the commandments. That's what Christ said himself in the New Testament. So, he was around when the Psalms were written and inspired them. So, most of all of what he said in the New Testament simply echoed the principles from the Old. Didn't change them, upgrade them to not only what you do, but what you think. Was the only really change, real change that he made in the law. Is that it became all-inclusive instead of just your actions. So it is what converts us. We don't like the law by nature because we want to do what we want to do. But if we pay attention to it and follow it, then it begins to change us for the good. And yet people hate the law and they try to find something in the Gospels or the writings of Paul that will do away with it. And yet he himself said the law is holy and just and good there in Romans 7 and other places. But it is some vague statements he makes that they try to twist out of context and say, forget the law, it's grace only. No, it isn't. We're, I think it's a little further here, not very far, where it says he will reward us according to his, our works. And yet they try to say works are done away with. So the testimony of the, of the eternal is sure, making wise the simple. So God has called the weak, the base, the simple, not the highly intellectual, not the scholars, because actually God's way is quite a simple way. It's just that we don't like it by nature. What is so complicated about the Ten Commandments or any of those supporting uh, statutes that go with them, that help explain them? It's, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? It's not that hard to understand. Don't cheat, lie, steal, kill, you know, keep the Sabbath. Those things are fairly simple. But they can make us wise. So if we are simple, we can be made wise by looking at the creation, he says here, and by following the laws of God. So God has said, I'm going to take these people who were not very much in control of themselves, not very highly educated, and I will confound the world because of the wisdom they learned. What are the biggest problems in the world? Essentially, relationship problems. People can't get along with people. Nations can't get along with nations. It's really very simple. If we have a giving, loving approach toward any and every one we come across, we will get along a whole lot better. But when we lie and cheat and steal and commit adultery and all those things, we destroy relationships and it creates problems. The world has all kinds of advice columnists and all kinds of psychologists, and as someone psychiatrists, all kinds of professional people to deal with problems, and yet the world is filled with problems. I maintain that you don't need to read all of those psychological self-help books now, I'm not saying some of them can't be of some help at some times. But everything we really need to know about getting along with people and proper relationships are right here in this book. If you study it carefully, think about it, and apply it to everyday life, most people problems would go away. And we don't have a whole lot of problems with sparrows and rabbits. It's people problems that are our problems. So it can make us wise. We don't see much wisdom in the world. We see a lot of foolishness. Well, David's making a pretty good statement here about the ways of God. Verse 8, the statutes of the eternal are right, rejoicing the heart. We all know that when we do things according to God's will and way, things go better for us. But when we're obstinate or hard-headed or stiff-necked or murmuring or whatever, things get more difficult for us. 
The commandment of the eternal is pure, enlightening the eyes. Where do you get light? Where do you get understanding? The commandments of God. Now, the fear of the eternal is clean, enduring forever. If we stand in awe of God and what he's created, and then the rules that he made to govern human life, then that is clean, it's good, it's pure, it's right, enduring forever. The judgments of the eternal are true and righteous altogether. You're not going to find any bad judgments, any bad court cases in this book. Human judges constantly make prejudicial, one-sided, upside-down judgments based on their background and experience and mostly apart from the law of God. So there is no justice in the land. It is sick from the head to the foot, Scripture says. But God's judgments are always right. If you want to learn to be a good judge, study all those places where God makes a judgment in the Bible and what factors were involved and what kind of decisions he made in people's lives. And that's how you learn to be a judge. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. There are a lot of people who have gold, but it's fool's gold because they still don't know how to live. What was that song that we sang the other night? Only one rich man in ten has a satisfied mind. Wealth does not make us happy. Living according to God's laws makes us happy. Have you noticed the rich and wealthy divorce a lot? They have lots of problems in their personal lives. They get into drugs and too much alcohol and all kinds of problems because the wealth doesn't do it. We have something far more important here. By and large, I think we've gotten along pretty well this feast, haven't we? I haven't heard much sand in the air. I think everybody's getting along pretty well. If they're not, they're certainly hiding it from me. Everyone seems, for the most part, to be smiling and happy and enjoying everything. Maybe we're kind of following God's laws pretty well right now. We're treating each other with respect and kindness and gentleness and helping and serving one another and doing things together and buy, <coughs> buying each other dinner and all kinds of good things. And works out pretty good. And we're not around the world much either to influence us the wrong way. So, they're worth gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Hard to find anything much sweeter than honey to the taste. And yet he says God's judgments and laws and his judgments are sweeter than that. Because they produce peace, love, kindness, like dessert. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. So, God's ways are there as a warning, and we need a warning because by nature we will transgress them. So, they're there to let us know this is the way, walk in it, not the way you're thinking. That's why we keep them in mind. In keeping them, there is great reward, both in this life and in the future. Who can understand his errors? A lot of people just make the same errors over and over and over again, don't they? We tend to be that way because we as an individual human being, we all have certain weaknesses and certain strengths. And we tend to repeat those weaknesses over and over and over again, because that's the area that we have difficulty with, whatever it might be. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. So often we hide or try to hide our weaknesses and our problems and difficulties, not only from others, but even from ourselves. Because we can be very self-deceptive. 
I mean, there's just certain things about each and every one of us we just as soon not know or admit. You know? Just the way it is. Because we recognize that. And they become secret faults in one sense because we try to hide them rather than truly overcome them. You know, face them face on and realize where we are not keeping and in line with God's rules about our relationships with others. And therefore, we keep making those mistakes. And then sometimes, it's not just self-deception. We just don't recognize within ourselves the way we react and what we do that is offensive and difficult for others to deal with. And we all have them to one degree or another. So they are in that sense secret, but then often others can see it because they feel it. Our reactions are not right, and therefore, they feel the heat, even though we may not even realize that what we did or said just offended someone. Now, of course, our reaction is they're not supposed to get offended by anything. Even me. You know? Well, we're also supposed to not give offense. We're not to give it or take it. And yet it happens daily and continually. Because we sometimes do not see ourselves as others see us. And we don't have to live with the effect of what we have said. Somebody else does. So he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. There's another place that says presumption is as witchcraft. It is so easy to presume more than we should, to take liberties ourselves that presume us to be above someone else, better than someone else, above the rule, above the law, whatever it might be, because putting yourself ahead of someone else or the law is exalting yourself. And he says, if you do that, you will be abased. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. So we need to be very careful about presuming or taking opportunity or authority to ourselves that has not been delegated to us or that we don't have any more than anyone else has. But sometimes we run over people because we want what we want and we presume that we are more important at the moment than they are. So they get trodden under, you know what in the business world, dog-eat-dog, step on people as you go up the ladder, or whatever. So he says, keep your servant from presumptuous sin. So a presumptuous sin is not one necessarily that you know you're doing. It's just so easy for us to overstep our bounds because we feel so self-important. Let them uh, not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. So it's a great transgression to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and to esteem ourselves better or higher or more important or smarter or whatever than someone else. That's why it is not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves, because when we make those comparisons, we most generally will put ourselves ahead of someone else. My way of doing it, my way of thinking it, or whatever it might be, is better than yours. And that is pride, ego, and vanity, and it gets us in trouble, doesn't it? And what then is the great transgression? Well, it has to include loving yourself above your neighbor. Putting yourself first. Because that violates the whole law. Isn't that the great transgression? It's setting aside the whole law of God so that you might exalt yourself above someone else. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Eternal, my strength and my Redeemer. So the words here are not in self-exaltation. They're in, let me not presume to be above or put myself above anyone else, but 
Let my thoughts, my mind be acceptable, Father, in the way that I treat all those around me. Chapter 20. The Eternal hear you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend you. So here again we have a prophetic flavor to this. There can be days of trouble in all of our lives, certainly, and have been since Adam and Eve first were on the earth. But it also projects forward to the day of trouble, the big troubles that are coming ahead of us right now. The name of the God of Jacob defend you. Whose name will we call on when things get rough? On the name of God. We're not going to call on the U.S. government. We're not going to call on uh, our insurance company. We're not going to call on the doctor. We're not going to call on anybody but God. He has to be first and foremost in our mind. Send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. God says he is pleased to dwell in Zion. Zechariah 2 says in the end time he will come and dwell with us in Zion. And that is where sanctuary and strength will come from. There will be no godly strength on the face of the earth because Satan and the new world order will be ruling the entire earth. There's only one place that the strength and the power and the love and the mind and the light of God will shine from. Remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Think about it. We have given offerings to God as human beings, and He certainly has sacrificed and given offerings to us. And His offerings and sacrifices that man have performed toward Him seemed onerous, seemed difficult. And in fact, He didn't even speak of them when they came out of Egypt, according to Jeremiah 7.22. Nothing was made of sacrifices. They were added because of transgression. Well, even the sacrifices God has made for us were the result of transgressions. Ours. So he sacrificed the biggest sacrifice of all, his son's life, for us. So I don't know exactly how he meant this in verse 3, but it works both directions. Grant you according to your own heart, and fulfill all your counsel. We will rejoice in your salvation. I think that the force of it here is speaking of God and His heart, and fulfill His counsel. Well, what does He want to do? He wants to give us His kingdom. So He's praying that that be fulfilled. We will rejoice in your salvation. And there He defines that. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to rally behind except the way of God, except our trust in God. That's why I've made quite a little, and the Scriptures have recently, about putting our trust, our faith, our confidence in Him, not in other means and other methods of resolving our problems, whatever they might be. But we need to learn to put every problem, every difficulty we have ultimately in God's hands. But we have many, many different ways that we will go elsewhere for solutions rather than to Almighty God. And if we do, that shows we simply don't have the faith that we need. We need to build that. We need to grow in it. We need to entrust God with more and more instead of less and less as we proceed through life. So He is our banner. The eternal fulfill all your petitions. He knows our needs. He knows our sicknesses. He knows our illnesses. He says He is our healer. And I think it is a slap in the face to Almighty God any time we go for a different solution than to God. Because that's what He says. We'll not get into the whole medical thing here, but I think there should be people trained certainly to do certain things. But mankind takes it way beyond what God intended. And Christ went through all that he went through, that by his stripes we might be healed. 
But the minute we have trouble, it seems we have become so dependent upon the medical profession, which is killing people right and left, drugging them up, and destroying their lives, that that is the God that this world worships. It's where they spend most of their money now. That's sad. Now, it's not easy to wean ourselves off that. And perhaps there are certain procedures. You know, if your elbow, elbow bone is sticking out behind your ear, uh, maybe they can help with some of those things. But that's not sickness. It's not disease. It's just putting stuff straight and maybe sticking a screw in it. But So there could, should, if we've got to have automobiles, we've got to have people trained to take them apart and put some things back together, I guess. But when they start playing God, trying to heal disease then that is an offense to God. Where those lines are, nobody can define. But we need to, day by day, week by week, put more trust in God, not less. Wouldn't it be nice if we all came to the point that we could trust God with everything in our lives and our lives themselves and know that He heard and that that petition was listened to, and that he would do the very best there is for us at that given moment in time. He says, if we will pray according to his will, it will be given us. Now, sometimes his will and ours might be at conflict. And then we want what we think is our way. Verse 6, Now know I that the Eternal saves His anointed. Well, David had lived enough at this point that he had learned to trust God in various situations. And he believed that God saves His anointed. Who are His anointed? Those who have been called out, set apart, sanctified, or anointed to be a part of the first fruits. And he takes care of them. He says he will. Anything you ask will be given you. But it has to be done in faith and in trust. Hoping in hope doesn't get it. No, I think it's difficult when someone tells us, well, only God can save you now. In other words, you've gone everywhere but to Him... You've tried everything you can think of, so as the last resort, go to God. What is wrong with that picture? If God is creator, healer, sustainer, and all those titles that he has, what would be wrong with going to him as the first resort? Perhaps the only resort, instead of other places. If I can't find help anywhere else, I'll go to God. Now, does that indicate him being first in our lives? Think about that. He will hear him from his holy heaven. Those he set aside, he will hear. Now, he has to some degree turned his face from us because of our disbelief, because of our apathy. And the only way we can get him to turn and heal and help and strengthen again is by turning back to him with our whole heart. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Sounds simple. Try it. It's hard to do. It's hard to put him first in everything. But that's what he requires. That's what he wants. Now, isn't it in the Great Tribulation where 90% of the church, unfortunately, is going to go? That they're going to have such pressure put on that they will face physical death, and perhaps even all who were called, baptized, if they stand up for God at all, will be physically killed. So we do everything we can now to preserve our physical lives, and God said, if you do that, you'll lose it. If you're willing to lose your physical life in me, then you will save your life eternally. It's a very simple recipe, 
but very hard to follow because we want to buy all the time on this earth we can get. What's wrong with dying? It's appointed to all men once to die. God never promised us long life. He said if we'd honor our father and our mother, our days could be long upon the earth. Well, we have our Father in heaven that we have to honor, and He can grant us longer life. We have our Mother the Church, which He stipulates, if we show honor and respect to her, to each other, as members of the Mother, then God will grant us long life. And certainly, on the physical level of our physical father and mother, if we honor them and respect them and obey them, we'll tend to live longer because we'll have learned some things about life that would tend to preserve our life instead of cut it short with drugs and cars and various things that foolish young people do. We would save ourselves a lot of pain and grief and maybe an early death if we honored the teaching of our parents. So whether it be on the physical level or the spiritual level, that honor and respect is needed. I want eternal life, not necessarily long life on this earth. I'm at an age now where I'm not too far down the road looking at walking on a cane and drooling down my chin. Now, do I need that prolonged? What is my body begins to break down and I have aches and pains all over and difficulties? What good is it to preserve that? It's more important to be preserving eternity when the aches and the pains are gone and the tears and the suffering. But we are taught by this world to prolong our physical life as long as we can. We even have life support systems that generally take all we have left in terms of monetary uh, assets that could have gone to perhaps our children or other good causes We spend them all by the tens and twenties and hundreds of thousands on medical bills. Just to try to prolong our lives, keep us on the machine for a while because, oh, we don't want them to die. That just shows lack of understanding. It is appointed to us all once to die. And it is acceptable to die. I remember very vividly... A lady, remember her name even, back in Miami in the late 60s. She had cancer. And she had decided she was going to leave it in God's hands. She was 60-ish, I think. And she suffered a great deal. She didn't want to go to the doctor. She tried it just a little bit and decided that was not the thing to do. She wanted to leave it in God's hands. And it frustrated her no end that she had made her decision in faith that whether she lived or died, she belonged to God. And then she had all these church members coming and urging her, go to the hospital, go to the hospital, you've got to live, you've got to live, you've got to fight this. They were destroying her faith. She was seeking to put God first and leave her life in His hands. And people worked on her day and night to destroy what little faith she might have had. Now, you make your own decisions. But if people decide what they want to do, and they're trying to build faith and trust in God, how do we dare get in their way? Let's understand this, because I see it happen all the time. And then as she neared death, they would come and make her feel guilty for wanting to turn loose and die. Because she told me, she says, I'm just tired. I don't want to fight this. I've left it in God's hands. If he chooses not to heal me in this life, that's his decision. I belong to Him, and I just as soon die and be in the kingdom of God instead of in pain today. 
And I said, you have the right to turn loose and die if you so desire. And it was not loving your neighbor as yourself for all those people, well-meaning, well-intentioned, to be on her day and night about what they thought she ought to do or had to do. That's not fair. There is a time to die, and sometimes people know when it is. They might have a better idea of it than you do. Now, when we push them where they don't want to go, we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. okay? We may be well-intentioned. We may think we have their best interests in mind. We may think we're giving good advice. But there comes a time... Where love says, okay, you can turn loose if you want to. See, we don't want to lose them. We don't want to not have them around. So, it's not them in some respects sometimes that we're most concerned about. It's us and the loss that we will face if they die on us. I had a veterinarian that spoke the truth. He said, I have people come in all the time and say, we didn't bring this animal in, but we brought him in when he couldn't stand the pain any longer. And he said, they all say that, but it's not true. They brought the animal in when they couldn't stand the pain any longer. Think about that one. He'd had years in the veterinary field, and it was the pain of the people, not the dog, that was relieved. Well, the dog was relieved too, finally. The animal might be ready to die a long time before you're ready to let it go. That's the point I'm trying to make. So you get some poor old 80-year-old person here who's decrepit and in pain and sick and life is difficult and has not much meaning left on this earth in many respects and feels worthless and useless anyhow because of their physical and mental debilitation. And they say, I'm tired of life, I want to die. And then we take them in there and put them in the emergency room and stick all kinds of things in every hole in them and try to keep them alive until we just absolutely cannot keep them alive another second. And then somebody mercifully finally pulls the plug. Now, am I sounding harsh and mean? I hope not. The point started with, put everything in God's hands. He knows you better than anyone else. He can either grant more physical life or give it away. He did with Hezekiah. Granted him 15 more years, didn't he? Healed him. Fixed him. They weren't really happy years for Hezekiah, but he said, that's what you want. Okay. Gave him 15 more years. I think he may have done the same thing with Herbert Armstrong from the time he had his headache, uh, headache, heart heart attack, till he died was about 15 years, as I recall. And I think that he was a type of Hezekiah in the 30s in Isaiah. Because we became spiritual eunuchs in the world in Babylon after he died, unable to do any great work, unable to do anything at all except seemingly fall apart. The church is dying. Well, if the church is dying, where do we turn? We turn to God. If we are physically dying, where do we turn? We turn to God. And if we do take any physical Steps, we need to take those, talk those over with God and try to determine in our minds if any physical solution is one that he would not have a difficulty with. Because many of them he does have a difficulty with. Because we're trusting in someone other than him. And he wants us to trust him. That's ultimately what this is all about. 
And if you wind up dying without ever having learned to trust and have faith in God, then what good are you to Him in the world tomorrow? So that's what this life is all about, is learning to trust God. So we have all levels of that, and each one of us varies in that level of trust and faith that we have day by day, don't we? It can kind of go up and down. It's a bumpy road, trusting he, he whom you cannot see, except by the heavens declaring his glory and seeing it in the firmament about us. And knowing that only the most kind, loving, gentle being could make the beauty and the splendor of what we have around us. He will hear from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses. Trust in our great military and mankind to protect us. It's not just medical, it's not just this, it's not just that. He uses physical death from invading armies as another one. Some will trust in their military. But we will remember the name of the Eternal, our God. When the military comes on this nation, which it will do very soon, their intent and purpose will be to kill all of us they possibly can. Famine, disease, and pestilence will kill a lot of us, but they'll get about a third of us with the military. It says that in Ezekiel 5 and other places. Americans as a whole depend upon our armed forces. They think they're our salvation. Nah, nobody dares attack us. We have too strong a military. Well, the Bible says very clearly we are going to be attacked and we are going to be vanquished. We're going into captivity one more time. And all the help of all the king's horses and all the king's men will not put us together again. It will take God to do it. After most of us die. That's what it will take. Now, where should our strength and our refuge and our trust be? They're going to try, every, they're going to, try to kill every member of the church, that's for sure. And you know what? Satan the devil knows every one of us by name. He knows us well. He knows our faults. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our desires. He sees our sins. And He takes them to our Father in Heaven and our Redeemer and Savior every day and accuses us before God. Now, when Satan is turned loose on this earth, is cast down for the last time, who will he go after? The Baptists? The Hindus? No, he's coming after God's church. And he knows us well. He knows every one of us. He hates light. And did you know that though we may not have a halo that we wear, the light of God and His law is visible to Satan the devil. It is very apparent. He hates the light. He loves the dark. And if we have the light of God about us at all, it hurts his eyes. He wants you and me, by name, dead. And we will be the ones he comes after. And the U.S. Navy and Air Force and Army will not be there to protect us. They will have given over their strength and might and power to the beast. Our president will have shaken hands with them and made a deal to betray us. It says so right there in Jeremiah 50 or 51. 52 maybe, one of those chapters. He gives his hand. Justice Joda Koch gave his hand to Herbert Armstrong and then betrayed us. Ezekiel 17. It's coming. Now, physical 
trials, trouble, and stress are coming on us because of age and health, where do we look? Physical death is coming on us because Satan and his armies want us dead. Where will we look? We will remember the name of the Eternal, our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. We'll rise and stand for God, and if so, we will rise in the air to meet our God. That's what it all boils down to. The backbone derived from faith and trust in the only one who can solve, save the, solve us. Save us and solve our problem. Save eternal. Let the king hear us when we call. Now, we've rehearsed that recently. Give God no rest until they make Jerusalem a joy in all the land. And here he says, hear us when we call. We need to be calling on him. So who do we call on? We're going to call on the military? We're going to call on the county or the state or the feds? The doctors, the nurses, who are we going to call on when we have needs? Psalm 21, the king shall joy in your strength, O eternal, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. We are here because we want to be in the kingdom of God with life eternal. That's the only reason we're here. This group, this Building would not exist otherwise. That is our avowed goal, our purpose, the vow we took at baptism to put our lives in God's hands in every way. And we need to work toward that just as fast as we can. You have given him his heart's desire, speaking of David here, and have not withheld the request of his lips. David had his trials, troubles, difficulties, and so on, but he recognized where all the good in his life came from, and he was very quick to say so. Again, sila, or pause and think about it. This is important. For you prevent him with the blessings of goodness. Prevent is not a good word there. It's 1611. You precede or uh, you precede him with the blessings of goodness. God goes before us. He knows our needs before we even ask, as Christ said. You set a crown of pure gold on his head. He's promised us one. He set it aside for us. He said, don't let any man take it. Look to God. He's the one that fits the crowns. He's the one that awards the crowns. Don't look anywhere else but to him. Life, really, done that way, is pretty simple. He asked life of you, and you gave it him, even length of days forever and ever. David was not truly concerned so much with how long he would live on this earth. He wanted forever and ever. And when he did make mistakes, he repented from the heart so that forever and ever would be preserved. So he set us an example there, and he's going to be king of Israel forever and ever. I find it interesting, really, that David only lived 70 years on this earth. A lot of people lived longer who were righteous people. A lot of unrighteous people lived a lot longer than that. But God says, your, your days, more or less, except by reason of strength, will be 70 years. And we make remarks about that. I've only got three left, or five left, or ten left until my 70's up. And then if we get 73 or 5 or 6 or 80, we think, boy, i got a bonus here. Well, if you're already past 70, anything you got's a bonus, basically. So why fret it and try to live another six months or another year by artificial means? Why not let nature let it take its course and God give you the length of days He desires rather than trying to artificially prolong the agony, which is what it often is. The quality of life is gone. It isn't good. It isn't fun. It's painful. And yet we don't want to turn people loose 
So we give them, on top of their pain, we give them a guilty conscience as well. How much love is that? We meant well, but is it the right way? See what I mean? That doesn't mean we shouldn't encourage people. But let's be careful how far we take that. As long as they want to live, we can encourage them to do good and live as long as they can. But if they've gotten to the point they don't really care, they just as soon die, let up on the poor things. Verse 5, His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty have you laid upon him. He's speaking of himself as the king here. And it is, of course, about Christ as well. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceeding glad with your countenance. For the king trusts in the eternal. Christ is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. He trusted in God. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand shall find out all your enemies. Your right hand shall find those that hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Eternal shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. It's just ahead. Their fruit shall you destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. God is going to right the wrongs and set justice on this earth. For they intended evil against you. They imagined a mischievous device, which they are not able to perform. Therefore shall you make them turn their back, when you shall make ready your arrows upon your strings against the face of them. Be you exalted, eternal, in your own strength. So will we sing and praise your power. There are really only going to be two categories of people pretty soon. Those who trust God to protect them from the trouble to come, and those who do not. That's the only two categories of people there will be. And out of those two, the ones who trust him for everything in life and life itself are those who understand his truth and follow it and trust him with everything. Those are the ones he will protect. The rest are by time and chance, most of them going to die. So where do we want to be? Should we not, day by day, every day of our lives, be trying to put our trust and confidence and faith in Him in every way as much as we possibly can? Because if we're faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. So this life is here to what? To practice trusting God. The just shall live by faith. That's what they live by. Therefore, when the big tests come, the faith will have been built. Now, we are not all great paragons of faith today, are we? We put some things in God's hands, some things we won't, some things we don't dare, some things we're afraid. But the goal and the purpose is to go from wherever we may be to here. So that all trust and all confidence and all faith in every aspect of our lives is with Him. Now, it's not a condemnation that we are not there yet. This is a growth process. Grow in the grace and the knowledge and the faith in God. So if you aren't there yet, you don't need to be discouraged and quit. You just need to be working in the right direction, moment by moment, day by day, to put more trust, faith, and confidence in God. And you see David's rocky life and how he went up and down and through all this. It's there for a testimony that we're going to have to fight the good faith. And this takes time and energy and work and submission, yielding, in order to do that.
I admire very deeply the many of you in this room who have desires to marry, desires to have children, desires to have a normal life, but because of the circumstance and the situation, this end-time emergency crisis that we're starting to face, the fact that the church was not what it ought to be and God had to blow it apart so that there's such a limited selection of potential mates, and yet you know, God says, do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. It will be fraught with troubles and difficulties and just be another thing that tends to pull you away from God. And you're not supposed to indulge in wrong and misuse of things that God has made good in marriage. And young and old, you're working on it and trying to do what's right and leave it in God's hands. And I know it is a very, very difficult battle. It can be discouraging and depressing and frustrating. And it makes you want to scream and run into the desert or somewhere to relieve some of those difficulties. It's just another aspect of life which is a very personal and difficult one, that you are standing up for God and His way. And you are to be highly... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Respected. For taking the stand you've taken in spite of everything, because it shows that you're willing to put God's way first even to your own personal hurt and frustration for a time. But God is going to turn this around and He's going to make it beautiful and wonderful in His time and in His way. Trust Him. Maybe there's a good place to stop. Beginning of 22.